0: Welcome to this Centrum Podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org.
1: I'm Michelle Haquid, and this is On Air. A podcast focusing on conversations with artists and creatives from Centrum's residency community. I am broadcasting to you from the lands and waters of the Coast Salish people in a place known as Katai to the Sklalom people and today known as Port Towns in Washington. This podcast is focused on bringing artists together in community to explore the ways that place, process, and the personal intersect. We dive into the many ways that artists are responding to the current times, affecting change, and finding sustenance during health, climate, and social crisis. Join us and take an hour to be in residence and unpack your own relationships to creativity, time, and place. Thank you for being here and enjoy this episode. Hello, welcome to today's episode. Today we are bringing you a conversation between Manuel Arturo Abreu and Jalisa Johnston, which is part of a new partnership between Centrum and New Archives, which is an online journal focusing on arts in the Northwest region. I am joined today by Sapreet Kalong, who curated and helped establish the format we're using today. And we're going to chat a little bit about what led up to this and what folks can look forward to hearing about from Manuel and Jalisa. Sapreet, would you like to share a little bit about yourself and the work of New Archives to get us started?
2: Yeah, uh, thanks, Michelle, for having me. And thank you for reaching out to us about this partnership. It was really exciting and Yeah, I'm excited to kind of see how it unfurls as it goes. So yeah, I'm an artist, primarily an artist, but more and more so a curator and an editor and an organizer based in Seattle. I've been in Seattle for about uh, seven years. I went to grad school on the East Coast for two years and came back last year, but was flying back and forth a lot and was still really heavily involved with projects here. So I still count that time as Seattle time. So yeah, I've been here about seven years and so many ways I really love being in this region. And it's like the place where I have first really been a full-time artist and really comfortably have called myself an artist. And I think that's possible because so much of the community support that's available. And so I'm really grateful. And also I recognize sort of the lack of institutional support we have in our community here there just aren't there's just not that much money and there aren't that many institutions that offer grants and exhibitions and space for conversation and so I think that's kind of and there's no arts writing and so those are sort of the things that Matt Offenbacher who is the publisher who actually came to me with the idea of new archives and I were thinking about um, when we launched the publication and so and that's why I'm so excited about this series specifically I've always looked at Centrum's Emerging Artist Residency as a place that really one of the few places that allows for like cross geographical interaction in the Pacific Northwest and so I think this series to me is just like building on those relationships and um, allowing folks to, you know, hear what emerging artists in our area are thinking through and working on and hopefully help us develop sort of a regional understanding of what arts looks like here. Um, so, yeah, thank you for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, and thank you for bringing up the Emerging Artist Residency. You, you are one of our previous residents from that program and since then have been doing a lot. Um, And I should mention that when we invited you and Matt to do this, we invited you to think about the alum from that program and to curate these pairs. And so we're going to be doing three of these and maybe more like this down the road. And today we are really excited to start with Manuel Arturo Abreu and Jalisa Johnson, who were a great pair to start with. We handed the conversation completely over to them and let them dictate the pacing and the content. And we've both had a chance to listen to this now and are really excited about what they talked about. Do you want to say anything in particular, Sapreet, about Manuel and Jalisa's practices that were exciting for you um, in thinking about putting this pair together?
2: Yeah. I mean, like, for me, you know, like how we had talked about, like, do we want to kind of let the pair know, like, why we chose them and why we paired them up? And for me, it was like, you know like i was interested i think i was seeing these sort of they address this in their conversation this sort of fixation or exploration on performativity and how it relates specifically to blackness and thinking about the digital gaze and how the internet has affected our performative affect and yeah so i think i was you know i was working from a really intuitive place with appearing and yeah, it was just like, it's been really, I admire both of their practices so much. And I feel like they are one of like the great thinkers in our region. Um, so any chance, like for me, this series is like an excuse to basically hear people talk um, and to talk with their peers and um Yeah, it was for me. I don't know. Listening is like very, I'm an eavesdropper in public spaces too. (laughs) I love listening to people's conversations. And so, um, listening to this later, I was listening to it late at night last night, and um, it was just so nice, just like hearing two buds kind of hanging out and um, supporting each other's work and reassuring each other. Um, And I don't know, there's a point when Manny kind of says, um, to Julisa, like when Jaleesa like, "Oh, I'm frustrated with these drawings. I feel like they've lost meaning." And um, Manny says, um, "Are you frustrated with the drawings? Or are you frustrated mm-hmm. with the simplified reception mm-hmm. that they that they've received, basically?" Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really powerful moment for me um, when they were like, "You're blaming the drawings, but maybe it's not the drawings." Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's such a problem in this region Um, and in the art world in general, uh, where if you're making work about race and especially about blackness, there is, when it's mostly white people who are writing and viewing that work, um, there is going to be so much nuance that's lost. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know, I just love that they got to have that moment Mm -hmm. and um, that we were able to witness that moment and hopefully... You know, I had a moment of recognition in that moment of like, oh, what work have I been frustrated by? Um, and why? Why um, Is it the work or is it something else? And so I hope other folks who are listening, same moment. Yeah.
1: And Sapreet, the other thing we should call out is that there's going to be a written component to all of this on the New archive site. Um, do you want to share a little bit more about that component?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, I think for, yeah, so for this this is going to be a part of our artist-to-artist Artist series where we kind of publish um, weekly excerpts, so I go through and listen to the conversation and then take post quotes, basically, so people can just get a quick sense of what was talked about, and I'm really excited that they can now listen to the full thing through Centrum's podcast, and yeah, I mean, we are also publishing um, Reading lists for the Revolution, where we're kind of making reading lists of work that goes kind of by, beyond just like racism or anti-racism 101 work, so that people can kind of do a deeper dive. And it's work and stuff that I'm reading and that I find interesting. And um, we're also publishing essays. We just had a really great essay that I'm so honored to have published by Ashley Still Myers, um, called I Don't Like Art, which I think is super reflective of how a lot of folks are feeling right now. And we're always looking for new writers, especially in like rural areas outside of Seattle and Portland, which are kind of our main hubs where we have connections, pay $300 an essay. And, you know, I'm a pretty hands-off editor and we're super open to ideas of, you know, just how people are, like we want essays that really reflect how folks are feeling. And so definitely our website is newarchives.org. Folks should email me
1: and pitch me. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah, thank you. And we'll link to all of that in our show notes. Thank you so much, Sapri. I have really benefited from all the work you've been doing, and I'm so grateful for it. That essay by Ashley Stallmyers is so important to give attention to right now. Well, without further ado, we will hand it over to Manuel and Jelisa and we hope you enjoy listening in. <laughs>
3: Hey, everyone. Thank you for uh, tuning in to this Centrum New Archives uh, podcast experiment. I'm excited to see it come to fruition and develop. My name is Manuel Arturo I'm a poet artist from the Bronx. I've lived in Portland for 10 years, and I'm really excited to have a conversation with Oregon artist Teresa Johnston.
4: Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is
5: Teresa Johnston, and I am an interdisciplinary artist currently based in the Pacific
4: Northwest.
3: Awesome. I wanted to start talking about this interesting intersection that we've approached in different ways um, of digitality and performance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've always been really struck by the way that you use digitality to render performance in these different uh, ways or uh, different frameworks, right? So I'm thinking of the collaborations um, with, with Nanda. Ferdinanda D'Agostino, uh, a white Italian artist in Portland. Uh, you can talk about your collaboration with her later if you like. And I'm thinking also about some of these videos that you made that are more kind of glitchy, but that the glitchiness comes out of performativity. And I've done a project, for example, called the Garage Residency, which was a performative arts residency. Yeah. Uh, I found housing after a long period of uh, houselessness and decided to just call my inhabitation of that space an artist residency. And most of the documentation or validation of that concept came through digital uh, documentation. Mm-hmm. So I see a bit of an overlap there and I would love to maybe hear you just explore or discuss some of those intersections.
4: Yeah, definitely.
5: Um, well, I think when, let me see, I'm trying to figure out where to start. So for me, performance, like it's all performance based. Um, and my performance work actually started with photography. So it already started. And, and I didn't realize at the time it was like performance. I was more thinking of it as photography. Um, so the camera was already a component that I took away and then decided to bring back because I started thinking more about, I don't know, like, I think becoming more involved in social media. And I just realized, like, this is a real space. And it, it's a it can be a freeing space because people can create who they want to be how they want to be really like pick and choose what they want to have out there. Um, but it's also, it also can be a limiting space because you know, the powers that be, that control all these different platforms or the internet as a whole. Um, but it's, it's a real space, I think with real consequences. And so for me, it's like this thing that exists, but doesn't exist. It's a material, but not a material. And so that's when I was like, well, performance. Ex- can extend into that because we've all got some sort of performative way of engaging with that. Um, and so I, I'm just, and I and I think it also pairs with the way I think about blackness too, but um, just that it's like a very real material thing, it's, but it's also not, it's also not a real thing. And so how can blackness extend into the space that is sort of it's parallel or, or not a parallel, but like could be a mirror for different things.
3: I love that. Or that resonates a lot with me. Um, mm-hmm. This idea of affect kind of having an inherently performative component to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like I spent a lot of time trying not to like appear dead-eyed or robotic, right? So mm-hmm. this idea of like having to perform non-depressive affect mm-hmm. is something that I think about a lot. Um, and then with this idea of the extension of blackness into these other spaces, I love that because like digitality, of course, is built on anti-blackness, right? And digital content and memes, they circulate in the same way that blackness does, right? And in a way that's parasitic on on black people. And blackness gets disconnected from us and it becomes this sort of commodified, resold thing. Uh, And it's very weird to see. I mean, I've been weaning myself off social media slowly precisely because of this, because it's so noxious from the very beginning to, to, to us getting the phones. Like from the enslaved West Africans that mine it to the East Asians that build it and you know kill themselves because they're suicidal factory workers yeah. and then we get phone shipped to us to be exposed to this constant anti-black like lynching mementos essentially right digital lynching mementos and it, it's done on purpose I think it's meant to be fucking us up and distracting us right mm-hmm. Toni Morrison says the the function of racism the very serious function of racism is distraction. Yeah. So yeah, what you're saying resonates uh, heavily with me. Thank you.
5: Yeah. It's it's such a, it's just such a weird space. It's like, it's this double edged sword, I think.
3: And you see potential in it too. It sounds like.
5: Yeah. I mean, I think it's been helpful. Like I know that like for like organizing or for, I mean, just the ability to, and I like, even with, it's a very controlled space, but there is some little sliver of an ability to control and articulate who you want to be, which I think is very, Black people don't always have that opportunity, I don't think. Um, and so it can be that for some people. So I'm like, oh, it, it can be this thing that can be powerful, but it can also be and is this really dangerous
4: um, violent space, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: And so extending performativity into that context for you, it's it's kind of rhyming with tangibility or intangibility of blackness as it extends. That's mm-hmm. really awesome. That's super cool. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear more about that.
5: Yeah, no, I, I think, because the thing about blackness and I think about it in relationship to like myself and my family and friends, um, that it, blackness in itself is, is something that I also find is like a double-edged sword. Because it was a label that was like, not even really, we didn't really create, right? It was something that sort of was born out of colonialism um, and white supremacy. But, and so in that way, I'm like, oh, it comes from this very dangerous root or this very like limiting violent space. But at the same time, black people have just like picked it up and turned it into this amazing, beautiful Expansive, like creative space, and so for me, I'm like it's it's both of these things. Like, it's something that can be so dangerous for us, but also something that can be so incredibly powerful and empowering and amazing. And I haven't figured out how to reconcile the two, so I just sort of try to sit with them both.
4: Totally.
5: I don't know, but the, I don't know what your thoughts are on like views of blackness, but
3: I think that. It is a constructed concept. It brought a bunch of different types of people together. For, it Forced a bunch of different people together.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, obviously it sucks that we got, you know, natally alienated, detribalized, and taken off of our lands and stuff. And uh, depending on your family history, you know, forced to mix and stuff like this. But the, out of that kind of forced closeness to all these different kinds of people, like you're saying, this really incredible set of things emerged that transformed, I mean, really developed the modern world as we know it. Right.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
3: to me, it's not only the resilience, but the creativity of these people forced into this unified label, despite, you know, infinite, uncountable sets of differences Yeah, in this forced closeness and the kind of irritations and frustrations and, and fraudage that develops. uh yeah, there's a lot of creative potential to me.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so I was reading this guy, Kigoro Macharia, who talks about diaspora in that way. Diaspora as fraudage, as enforced intimacy through the hold. right? And then
4: mm-hmm.
3: the creative navigation or, yeah, the, just the ongoing conversation about, well, we're all in this category. What do we do together? Yeah. So, yeah, in that sense blackness has been digital from the very beginning, right? Yeah. The dramas are digital, right? They they connect these different tribes and lands and they talk across distances. So resonating.
5: I, I was actually um earlier I was looking back at like I think I stumbled up upon an a old blog thread that you had from your residency when you were doing the garage residency. And I was interested, there was one poem. So it's actually your Facebook. You were trying to go through your Facebook feed to pick out some of the like really good posts that you had made from your updates and stuff. And then you'd made this book and then you did a reading on architecture. And then you'd composed a video. And I don't know, I was just like, the choices, like the, the videos to mash with. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about like your work with video in that way. And then if it shifted or if it's still engaged, like the process. Is it still engaged in a similar process?
3: That's a great question. Thank you.
5: Um,
3: Yeah, so that video, the concept is that it's a post-internet poetry video commissioned by uh, Holly Childs for this one-week exhibition at MCA Australia Mm
4: -hmm.
3: uh, or MCA Sydney. And um, so, yeah, the video... It combines ideas about digitality and video games and video game music specifically yeah. uh, with ideas of architecture. Right? So the ideas in music, the resonance of music, the different kind of structures and abstraction of music, are the kind of toolkit for architecture, for a specific kind of architecture. So you know, thinking in the context of Black people, it could be social architecture, it could be constructing a, a ritual, uh, constructing a different kind of household based on sound right not just like music but language uh utterance gesture right so that's how i was thinking of those two things intersecting and i was drawing on david wise who composed the music for the underwater level of donkey kong <laughs> uh, and it's just a beautiful composition and was really it's always been really evocative to me it was the song that was playing when my mom went to the hospital to give birth to my little brother, you know, so it's always kind of stuck in my head as this like powerful song that, uh, it it links underwaterness to the digital in this interesting way as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, so in terms of future stuff after that, I've never made a video like that again, really uh, something that incorporates found clips, my poetry, um, my critical writing, my voice, So it is kind of a singular thing within my practice, but I think that a lot of the ideas in that video uh, suffuse themselves in other aspects of my practice.
5: Yeah. Another thing that I was thinking about is archive, the way archive works for you, because you, like your brain, I'm like, how on earth? does this person remember all of these quotes, all of these names, like you have so much reading that you reference. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm like, whoa, I have a huge book club. For and I'm like, I'm slowly picking my way through everything. I co- I collect material faster than I can read it. So I'm just also curious about just like your practice of reading and, and referencing. Um, yeah, it blows my mind.
3: Thank you. It's a great question. And um, you know, I, I learned my techniques of citation from Black women. and Make sure to cite the Black women that I learned pretty much everything from. I think there is this kind of like, oh my God, you're reading so much and it's it's so brilliant. And yeah, that's true. But also, I think that what's what makes that so strange is that other people aren't actually engaging the work of Black women, right? And that's what really needs to change. I don't. Yeah. But I, I appreciate your comments obviously. Yeah, it's a, in my own life I read a lot. Uh, I spend a lot of time reading for sure. And it's a nourishing thing for me. Um someone as someone that makes a lot of money through writing uh, in terms of freelancing and stuff, but as someone who has a lot of difficulty producing written work, um writing is a really a uh, reading is a really good solace. Like it kind of when I'm frustrated with producing, I just consume and it relaxes me a little bit and gets me more into the ability or mood mm-hmm. to produce written language, which is always a struggle for me. I, I really don't like doing it. So.
5: Mm-hmm. And would you say that it's the same for both like your poetry and like when you're writing like your articles, like, or critical pieces, is it a similar, like you don't enjoy or not that you don't enjoy it. Well, you just say you don't enjoy it, but like,
4: yeah. So you don't enjoy
5: it's, both. It's or? the
3: same. Yeah. Yeah. Poetry is a little more fun because you know, as you cited with that video, you can kind of expand into different places. But yeah, it's it's kind of the same for me. I just don't like sitting down and like writing. It feels really dumb. Like like I feel stupid when I do it.
4: Yeah.
3: My my discursive abilities that happen in like with my tongue and in meat space don't translate the same. So it's always been an ongoing struggle in terms of like, and I think that has to do with like code switching or something. I don't know, but written text has this level of formality or ritual to it that is not as useful for me as something like this like just talking you know yeah I, I saw that you performed at um Wanawari and I, I would love to hear about that because I couldn't find any video
5: oh no I didn't actually end up performing at Wanawari. Um, oh, you just gave the talk. yeah I was debating and I don't know what's happened but this year and last year i I mean, I'm still doing some performance, but for some reason, there's something in me that's like not pumping the brakes, but just like drawing inward. And I haven't been called to perform in front of lots of people over Mm -hmm. the last like several months. Um, Part of me is alarmed. Like, oh, my God, what's happening? Why aren't you performing? Why aren't you like jumping to do this thing that you've always sort of been very interested and invested in doing publicly at least? But then there's another part of me that's like uh ah, ebb and flow of creative practice, just go with it. Like don't worry about it, don't stress it. You don't have to be any one
4: thing for any person. So
3: Absolutely.
4: Yeah.
5: So that's, and you have
3: such a wide breadth of, of work too. Yeah. You don't have to perform.
4: Yeah.
5: Yeah. So I was like if if that's not what needs to happen right now, then just don't stress. Yeah. I'm a um I don't know if you believe in like astrology stuff. But um, I struggle between, like, I'm a Virgo rising and a Pisces sun. And I struggle between, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, trying to, like, compartmentalize and be organized and do this and that and that. And this is right and this is wrong. And then the, like, more, like, flowy side of me that's like, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Whatever. It's all whatever. It's all good. I struggle with that. So (laughs) there's a part of me that's, like, very structured and says, no, if you're a performance artist, you need to be actively performing. Then there's the other part of me that's like, well, that's
4: not necessarily true. You can do whatever the fuck you want.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Those energies can be intention inside of you, of course. Yeah. Mm
5: -hmm. You do a lot of different mediums as well. Like, how do you navigate all the different ways of making?
3: It's very similar to to what you said. Um, I try to pride or privilege this kind of amorphous uh, tendency. And let things take the form that they feel like they need to. Mm-hmm. And so my job is like to be able to determine or detect what those forms feel like they need to feel like, right?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So it's it's kind of an ongoing process of like, and it's not cut and dry. It's not to say that writing is best for certain kinds of things or certain kinds of ideas. Uh, and most of the time, that kind of thought is the opposite of the truth. When I have it, like, oh, writing is best for for theory, and it's not. Yeah. It's not good for theory. It's bad. Um, so yeah, I try to always keep an open mind and privilege that amorphous or kind of freewheeling roughneck approach, you know? Yeah. Um, there will always be something at hand to give form to this, like, mat- this internal roiling mass inside of us, you know? There's always going to be something for us to express, so we don't have to worry about it too much.
5: Yeah. No, I agree with that. I think it also can be like a very... Um, just like being in academia, like all of the boxes, you know, and like sticking to a box, I feel like that's a very hmm. can be a very academic thing. I'm like, oh, that's my training clicking in right now, telling me that I have to do this thing and be consistent, when it doesn't have to look like that.
3: Yeah, I always wondered about that because I don't think of you as a performance artist. I do. I think of you more as a conceptual artist and. You work in still in moving image, you've got print work, you've got performance work, you've got structural, like installation type work. I mean, you, the idea of you as a performance artist it, it wasn't something that came to mind. So, yeah, until other, pe- until other people discussed your work to me and, and described you that way, and I kind of paused and, and thought about what that means. Because it's the same for me, people think of me as a writer more than anything else. And, mm-hmm and I am okay with that. I think it's cool. To, it's like, there's something cool about being a writer, right? Cause you're like in poverty and shit. And <laughs> always, always thinking or something. There's a level of like, it's got cultural capital from that kind of position of struggle, yeah. right? Str- struggle to survive, but also struggle to produce meaning. But I don't feel like a writer, so I can relate. Mm-hmm,
5: mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't feel like any one thing. Yeah.
3: I know. And I think that's, that's a black thing. Like that's, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess other people have different experiences, but I find that a lot of black artists resonate with this sense of amorphousness as it ties to fugitivity or something maybe, Mm -hmm. or these ideas of like the single category that you're looking for to describe our practice. It's never going to fit, you know? Yeah. It's not supposed to.
4: It's
5: too limiting. I don't know. That's the thing that I guess I'm unconsciously pushing against. I think a lot of, I mean, I can't speak for all black people, obviously, but like, A lot of my
4: close friends and family are often pushing against being boxed because, I don't know.
3: It just doesn't feel right, I guess. No. It feels, and even to me, to, to call myself an artist is something I struggle with sometimes as well. Because I'm so, I don't care about the form that something takes. So it doesn't have to be art at the end of the day. Some of my favorite things that I do, like homeschool, are not art, right? Mm -hmm. And they're super fulfilling for me.
5: Yeah. I was talking, do you know Cheryl Burroughs?
3: That name sounds really
4: familiar.
5: She's an artist, um, also currently in Portland. She's a Black artist. She's bald. Um, Her work, like, often deals with, like, spirituality, identity, Mm -hmm. and thinking about, like, yeah thinking about the lens of identity and who we are through spirituality um but I was talking with her and I like the way she thinks about art because I it was one day I was like you know what I I like when I can just turn off being an artist and just like be a person and then she was like well what do you mean everything is art because in her eyes she thinks of like life is our existence is art so everything is art everyone's an artist and so that's something I've been playing around with lately of like, well, everything is art or nothing is
4: art.
3: <laughs> yeah, because if everything is art, then it kind of doesn't matter if something's art or not, right
4: mm-hmm.
3: What matters is how it makes you feel what it does
5: yeah, and that's done some weird things for my teaching mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I teach at I would PNC. Love to hear more. Oh yeah, I teach at PMCA and it's um and I love teaching a lot. I I think I just love being like with other people that like to create and just discussing ideas and like looking at each other's work. Um, but I think the more and more that my brain switches to like either everything's art or nothing's art, either one. Like we're all we're all walking, like everyone's capable of making work, everyone is capable of making really amazing work and you don't have to go to school for it, you don't have to read books for it. It doesn't come from those places, although those places can help or hinder sometimes. It doesn't come from that. And that's been making me wonder about, like, what does it mean then if I am teaching at an art school that says that you get to have an art degree? Like, what is that? Like, what am I supposed to tell my students? What am I okay. like? I don't know. So it's, that's I've been I've been chewing on that for like the last two years trying to figure out what that means. But I think that's part of like the, I was listening to, I actually was listening yesterday to the podcast you did with Matt Turner project. Mm-hmm. And I think you would mentioned for homeschool, right. That's sort of like part of it is that it doesn't really highlighting that art does not have to come from this, like within institutional walls or from a, mm-hmm. a degree or from like, that's not really where it comes from, but that it can really great work can, can come from many different places.
3: Mm-hmm. So. And also fuck art. That's another thing about homeschool is like creating a space for people who love to make shit and love to think and love to be together or be alone together. But also we just like hate art and hate this Western like value system. And the idea of producing art objects that have no function, that are autonomous, that don't have any social or spiritual function or, you know, dislocated or non-embedded into society. Mm -hmm. It's, you know coming from our cultures that's something that's really weird to us we don't know that's not the kind of art quote-unquote art that I grew up with you know Mm -hmm. the art that I know is functional and socially embedded spiritually functional socially functional non-autonomous you know Mm -hmm. so that kind of culture shock even even as I've been uh kind of acclimated or acculturated to accept western aesthetics as natural you know there's kind of a lifelong process of unlearning that and Mm-hmm. And, and validating the traditions that I come from and the traditions that I was raised in, you know?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So that's that's really important for me. Um, and I that's encapsulated to me by the phrase, fuck art.
4: Yeah.
3: So that's home school is all about that. It's all about all the different people that this term can serve as a meeting ground for, you know?
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
5: And how do you like when you do approach a space that's more tradition in the, that traditional Western view of like isolated art objects,
0: mm-hmm. how do
5: you um like bring that with you or how how does it how do you continue to embody that in those spaces? And I asked that thinking specifically about wow. the first time I saw your work in person, which was actually at PNCA, Nat Turner Project curated. It, it was with Sidoni O'Neill. Yeah. And it was this amazing set of objects.
3: But, yeah, I love that show. It's probably my favorite duo show that I've done.
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: Sidoni and I and the Nat Turner Project. Uh, for anyone who's unaware of them, it's uh, Melanie Stevens and Maximiliano Martinez running a kind of uh, freewheeling curatorial endeavor that tries to envision what would it be like to make and show work without the white gaze. Right. Mm-hmm a speculative proposal, but very interesting nonetheless. And even if it's impossible, that impossibility makes it more interesting to me. But uh, so, yeah, they, they do a lot of work around shielding the artists from the institution and the kind of weirdnesses and demands for linearity or cogency that the institution has. So I really appreciated that because PNCA is very kind of backwards in a lot of ways about that kind of stuff you know, intermedia, conceptualism, post-conceptualism, that kind of stuff. Um, or, you know, integrated performativity, if you think of your work in that context.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But so yeah, so Donnie and I, were having conversations around uh, the kind of commodification of apro-pessimist theory. Uh, and this specific phrase, why is it so difficult to refuse to refuse? Right?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Thick gesturing toward or thinking about black people being always conscripted into labor, into a labor of politics, into a labor of affect, right? It's a labor of criticality and refusal, uh, negation, deconstruction, uh, reconstruction, right? It's always the task of black people to do that work, and we were just talking about how that's embodied in uh, people misunderstanding Afro-pessimism and bringing it to the mainstream in this really weird way that actually just reinforces the plantation relation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the show had a lot of ritual objects uh, that were kind of building on themes of syncretism and histories of Afro-spiritual resilience in the diaspora, um, as well as some kind of more mythical or folkloric elements. Like Sedoni had works that were gesturing toward keloids. Um, yeah.
4: That was the jar, right? With the, Yeah.
3: Yeah. In the tapestry on the wall as well. It was a yeah, yeah. So it was a really really great show, and I loved being able to just have those really dense and open experimental conversations with NTP with Sidoni, and not have the PNCA institution trying to kind of put their their fingers in the honey pot or whatever, or try to like make sense of what they're being uh, what's being offered to them by us as artists. So yeah,
5: and I think that showed up at least the idea of like. Just, you know, fuck art and within that space, you know, which is like a very <laughs> all about the isolated art, like elevating the isolated art object. And I felt like what you both brought into the space really um, like pushed and, and challenged that or disrupted that.
3: Yeah. And it should be said, um, the efforts of not turning to protect the artists mm-hmm. aren't necessarily always successful. And institutions and their members can be violent. So, for example, uh, Sedoni's work was uh, vandalized yeah. during run of show. Yeah. And the school the school had video of the person that did it and was protecting the student. What? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so this shit runs deep. And uh, it, that's just to say that uh, NTP can do all of their incredible and valuable and exciting experimental labor, and that can still be the end result where yeah, a dark-skinned black trans person's work is still vandalized. Yeah. So that's why we need to keep working up for stuff to change. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's not okay.
4: No, not at all.
3: And you did a homeschool talk, uh, last year, I believe in 2019, yeah. right? Yeah. And that was really fun. Um,
4: that
5: was maybe fun. you
3: can talk about your experience doing that.
5: Yeah, no, that was great. That was a lot of fun. Um, for that, I, I, struggled get. that was actually probably the be- around the beginning so I was struggling between like you should perform and then like being like but I don't feel like ready to do that right now so then I decided to just do an artist talk um and homeschool is very awesome and let me choose what I wanted to do mm-hmm. um and the talk was great because it was it I always like doing those because it's a moment where I have to sit down look through everything I've done and sort of like engage with my work as a whole or like all the things i've been doing in all these little pockets of different mediums and then the talk was great i mean i I felt really good and comfortable and supported giving the talk and the questions were amazing you know i got some really good questions from people and got to meet some really cool people um yeah i really enjoyed that talk a lot plus that space is awesome that we were in uh
3: yeah
5: they have the big windows
3: Yeah, that space just uh, gave the property away to the Native Arts and Culture Foundation. Oh,
4: awesome!
3: Yeah, so it's a good decision.
4: Yeah.
3: First step towards decolonizing, you know, it's necessary. Mhm. But uh, so you know, they were lucky to have you before they ended, <laughs> <laughs> or before they transformed into you know, NACF. Yeah, that
4: mm-hmm. yeah, that was a fun.
5: That was fun. I got to talk about like the video work, my drawings, which. Are still lingering and being a pain in my butt right now and uh and then like some sculptural stuff that I've been more excited about
3: mm-hmm. Does the sculptural stuff build on like body assemblage work or is it something else
5: yeah it's the sculptural work um is it builds on what is it so it's like a lot of objects that I've used in past performances, so I'm bringing back a lot of like materials, you know I use a lot of hair and rocks and water and so i bring back that stuff and then i have used pretty much whatever i can find to put stuff together and i love it i love like there's something about like just like turning i don't know if this is turned off it can never be turned off like my brain but um just having things and putting them together until i find something that clicks something that feels very grounded something that feels like it's opened uh A portal for me and then I photograph it or leave it up for people to look at and then I and then I have to return usually because I use other people's stuff I have to return their things to them Um, and so they're just these things that exist for a minute and then they're done and I love that that's like there's I don't know maybe it's a lack of commitment to like an object or something like a sculptural piece but that it can just I can just keep reusing all these different materials and recycling
4: them and they mean something different each time.
3: That's funny to put it as lack of commitment cuz I thought of it as commitment to the ephemeral. Yeah.
4: Yeah. <laughs> that's what it,
5: it's just I I love that that it doesn't have to stay the same and that I can reuse the same stuff over and over again cuz that's the other thing too on a practical level space and materials and how many things we keep making. So for me, it's also like, okay, I can just pull together lots of different things and then put them back where they came from and not have to have a whole other thing that I now need to keep a space for or that now has to go in the garbage. Mm -hmm. I've experienced so many, like I've moved a number of times in my life and each time I've had to throw art away because I just couldn't, I didn't have the money or the like ability to take it with me. And so I think I'm just like, okay, I'm not doing anything more that I have to throw away. It's either I'll create it and it'll live for a little bit and then be a digital
4: photo file that can be looked at later.
3: Exactly, yeah. To answer your question before about archive and you know archivality, um, I don't really care about that stuff. I don't put too much uh, emphasis on it. Like, for example, um, I've been working on returning to the origin of my practice, um, doodles that I made in church when I was bored and frustrated when I was, like, you know, eight to ten. Um, a lot of those actual pages that I did doodled on are gone. They don't mm-hmm. exist anymore. So a lot of the project is speculative or imaginative, you know, and it takes on this dimension of, to tie in the virtual again, it takes on this virtual dimension and it's almost like a kind of a game or something for me to try to remember what happened and remember my own extreme frustration and just not. I just hated being in church. You know, we were in church like four times a week and it was fucking exhausting. But uh, <laughs> but it's also where my art practice uh, came from and a lot of these issues of ambivalence, using what's at hand. Engaging these kind of minimal affects, affects of like a a very small scale, right? Almost invisible, ephemeral. Um, All of that stuff started there. Uh, But how can I actually trace that if I don't have the archive, right? So these are some of the questions that I've been thinking about in that context. And uh, some of the forms that come out of it are, you know, moving image works um, and sound pieces, Mm -hmm. as well as some acemic writing
5: yeah that I've been working on yeah and it's interesting that you said like how can you trace that if you don't have the archive and that I've been thinking a lot I mean I'm always thinking about this but I've been thinking a lot more about like what we store in our bodies and how that our bodies are like a walking but (laughs) untrustworthy is that a word untrustworthy archive
4: yeah oh wow
5: I mean, it just like, I mean, you can trust it, but don't trust that it's going to be the same every time you return to it. And don't trust that the facts are, are, um, that's what I'm looking for. Not solid, but, um, sorry, I'm totally blanking on my words right now,
4: but that the facts are permanent. Stable. Yeah. Stable. Um, Right. And so, like, it's interesting to
5: me, just, I was thinking about you and, like, thinking about, thinking back to being in church, and you're like, I don't have that archive. I'm like, well, you do, but it's just, it's just an archive that you'll, like, keep revisiting, and it'll look different or feel different a little bit each time, or you'll remember something, or something will be there that wasn't there before.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And there's this sense in which that kind of project is... Uh, fictional or virtual for me you know even though the trace the impact that you're describing is real and, and physical it's also just that impact and i have to go back and reinterpret it every time as you're saying so it's, it's definitely a really interesting process and uh i mean obviously it mimics and draws on things like excavating ones own trauma and you know all that kind of stuff. Uh, I didn't have a very happy childhood. So
4: <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm doing a lot better now, which is good. I'm, I'm more in a place now to be able to go back and do that kind of work. Yeah. Because um, it, it's all tied into this kind of religious arc, right? And this is something that we've been kind of talking about a little bit or implying this like struggle toward something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this struggle toward or a pilgrimage toward something. It could be truth. It could be self. It could be autonomy, right? These are all things that I want and strive toward. So, yeah, the poems and the, the drawings and the videos that I'm making, they have this kind of arc to them about struggling toward or having a pilgrimage toward uh, the truth or something unmediated, something autonomous.
5: I was wondering, is that, because um, when I was online researching, well, Googling, I just Googled, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I always click to images, and I'm like, what images come up from Manuel? There's a picture of my and a wishbone, a little, is that right? That's the wishbone, that little, is that your image? Or is that just an image that's like, somehow linked to you through the internet?
3: Can you describe it better? There's a wishbone?
5: (laughs) It's like, so it's like a, it's a little corner of a drawing, it looks like. And the drawing has lots of black marks, like gestural Yeah, right.
4: And
5: then there's what I think is a wishbone. It's that three. Mm
4: -hmm.
5: Yeah. And and it's kind of, I think, is it sitting, resting on like a pin or a nail um, right at the corner of the drawing? Mm Mm-hmm. Is that yours?
3: It is. Um, so that was work from my last solo show at the AB Lobby Gallery at PSU. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, great. Thank you for bringing that up because that this kind of serves as, as an example of some of the output uh, of this process of trying to kind of relocate the origin of my practice and rebuild that archive uh, from church, from, mm-hmm. you know, the Philadelphia Pentecostal Church on 155th and Prospect in the South Bronx. So... This is A.C. writing, those big prints. They're prints of A.C. writing that I did, as well as sourced images from the Mormon Genealogical Archive Family Search. Family Search is a big part of how I do my genealogy. And in the process of going through their archives for the Dominican Civil Records and Catholic Church, I find a lot of beautiful illegible images. And I, I use them to gesture the illegibility of lineage and put them. Side by side with acemic poetry, uh, poetry made through mark making uh, that is not letter based or punctuation, it's it's just scribbles. And so, yeah, so those two things, and then uh, a sculptural element is introduced. I'll put a chicken bone or brick or stone that I collected uh, in the corners of these works as a kind of accretion or a kind of spilling over into the third dimension of two dimensional forms.
4: Yeah, that
5: I think that's awesome because right now, as I mentioned, like with my drawings, they're pain in my butt right now.
3: The hair ones.
5: Yeah, I just feel like they're like tired, like they're done, like. like, like, No,
4: they're so good. What do you mean?
5: (laughs) It's just this feeling of like I'm like, okay, what else are you gonna say? What else are you going to say? You keep saying the same thing over and over again. And I still keep getting ideas for drawings. I'm like, oh, this will come to my brain. I got to do that. But then I'll do it and it doesn't feel charged anymore. It doesn't feel potent anymore. And then I saw that image of yours and I'm like, that feels full. Like that feels really full. Just that little image of that corner. And I'm like, that that's the feeling that I feel like is lost with my current drawings. And I'm trying to, it's my own like, struggle to figure out what's going on there but I feel like they're just maybe it's that they're too contained or maybe it's that they're too like now too literal like of the body like whereas like before I was really having fun with drawings of my body and then playing with abstraction and how the body can flow in between now I feel like it's maybe too literal um I don't know if that makes sense but yeah they're a pain in my butt right now so I'm like trying to figure out what
4: to do with them.
3: Does a kind of oversimplified reception of the work have anything to do with that?
4: Possibly. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. Sounds I mean, a little bit like you're you're blaming the work fully when it should only be partly, right? Because of the audience and their kind of consumption.
4: Yeah. And the
3: reification of the dehumanization of the black woman's body, I think, has a lot to do with it. And I'm sorry you have to deal with that. But it, it limits or pushes on your work in this really violent way. I think that stuff is really, really good the kind of explorations of like sculptural assemblage through body gesture. I think it's awesome. I love it. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
5: Yeah. I actually hadn't thought about like the way it's being like, you know, if if the way it's being received, the way it's being shown, the way it's being talked about, how that affects my relationship to what's happening.
3: Do you prefer to just avoid thinking about that stuff?
5: Mm. You know, I would probably say, yeah, because, well, because I think part of me is like, if I, I think like wanting to be an artist and like, I would love to just be an artist and not have to do a lot of other jobs. I feel like maybe there's some sort of like, I have to somehow come to peace or make peace with these spaces and audiences that I have to show with.
4: for survival
5: yeah because currently as the system is right now that's really like one of the few avenues that i have to being able to just make my work um and so part of me i guess is like worried if i overthink it then you know then what will that mean well should i change something should i not show anymore should i just make work and not not put it out into the world then until the system somehow shifts or changes that allow us for my work to just be what it is and not have to mold it or question it too much.
3: Total sense. And that might, and I, thinking about this now more in depth, it makes me realize that that's a big part of why I'm so interested in amorphousness mm-hmm. is because it allows for some level of uh, comfort, comfortable distance from a lot of these Simplified audience perceptions and, and some of the machinations of the way that the work can get flattened, you know, so I yeah, with what you're saying. I was this is not related. Um but I was gonna ask about your mobile projection unit work. I know you did uh something with them maybe in like February or March.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, that's um Sarah Turner and Nanda's thing, right? Yeah. I would love to hear about uh, what you proposed and presented with them.
5: Yes. So, for that, I got to um, do a large projection, and it was whatever I wanted it to be. So, I get to choose the space and the content. And then I was working with Megan McKisserk. I think I said her name properly. Um, And she does a lot of coding. And so, it was like artists were paired with, in this project, several artists were chosen and then paired with several coders. Um, to create wow. a piece together. Um, and so for mine, I knew the space. So I was doing it backwards at first. At first, I was trying to choose the space and then make work that was sensitive to the space that I was choosing. And that kept stopping me. It kept I kept getting caught up and hung up in the process because I was just getting really picky about a space, researching a space. And they were like, you know, that's great process, but this is a shorter time span. you don't have a lot of time to do it that way (laughs) and what you're doing is you're kind of like holding up you're kind of getting in your own way right now so maybe don't be so strict about the process so then I was like okay well I'll just start with my work what I already have and then find a space that meets that and because I do a lot of work that involves bodies and nude bodies it's sort of like major like trafficked areas like foot traffic areas were out, you know, because there's always the worry of families and little kids and I I have a very I have my own opinion on that, but there's the worry of like, you know, you could we could get in trouble. Little kids will see like a boob, you know, I don't know.
3: Right, but they're seeing all these really misogynist ads for corporations all the time and apparently that's not an issue. So
5: Yes, exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> I was like, fine, I'll just pick something that is out of the way. So I ended up, uh, and I wish I knew the name. It was on the waterfront, kind of behind the Moda Center. Um, uh, what's out there? Pink Noise has been out there. The Boathouse, I think it's called. Yeah, so I chose that area because I was like, well, not a lot of kids are out here, especially at 10 at night, so this would be fine. Um, and I chose this like water tower, or I don't even think it was a water tower. I, it was some sort of construction building, industrial building that was right on the edge of the water. And then I had uh, recycled some of the material from my um, residency at Open Signal that I did. I made like different videos with of like me. I performed in front of their green their green screen. And I wore black and then performed and then like put great black over the green screen. So like parts of my body are visible and then other parts aren't. So I used that material and projected it on, uh, to the industrial building. And then Megan helped to with the coding to like do different things with it. Um, I know Megan had her own videos that she was going to add in, but I think the night of it was just so hectic that she had forgotten to add her own videos in, but, um, it was really awesome to see it with and without, so
3: so it was kind of like projection mapped onto the architecture yeah, yeah.
5: Cool. and it was and basically into just being like a tanglement of like bodies and
4: limbs like morphing in and out, which. For me, it, it represented a total like shrimp experience I'd had. So oh,
5: yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, so, really? Yeah. yeah, but it was good. Cool. It was fun. I had a good time awesome. it was good to work on a large scale like that and to be supported by Nanda and Sarah to do that.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you showed in a kind of architectural situation with Nanda as well at the PAM, right?
5: Yes. So that was actually mm-hmm. Nanda's work. Um, right, it, but you were
3: like in the footage or something. Mm-hmm. I think I saw you in it,
5: yeah, it was me, and then Sophia right, Amy. Um, we have so Sophia, myself, and Nanda already have a collaboration called inbody, um, and then a spin off from that, or maybe inbody is a spin off from Nanda's work, but uh, Nanda had asked me and Sophia to perform and like model for some of the video material that she wanted to use, and so. That was um Nanda's work that ended up in the museum with the two scrims and the projections. But then we got to perform in body, me and Sophia got to actually perform it with Linda K. Johnson in the um at the museum. So that was fun. Well.
4: Yeah.
3: So the body was kind of enmeshed through the projection installations.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, so like it kind of echoes the footage itself a little bit, right? Yeah. Very cool. And you, so you do a lot of this kind of collaborative or supportive work, I've noticed, because I know that you've worked with Maxi for some of their performances as well, right? Maximiliano and the, this kind of epic, uh, black trash bag series of performances. Yeah. I feel like I've seen you involved in that as well.
4: Yeah.
5: So Max, myself and Ruben actually also have a collaboration called Rise and Fall. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and Max was actually the one that approached approached both me and Ruben and saw that there was something um, potential that was there. And that's been a really, I've loved that performance that we do together and the collaboration so much. We use the black veil, Max's black veil for that. And sometimes we incorporate, like I work with this braid, this hair braid thing. Sometimes we use that too. So. so awesome. Yeah, it's fun. I i Have never really done collaboration or collaborative work until I moved here to port- Portland like shifted my whole practice about yeah. <laughs> it it I'd never done like I had always been interested in dance and experimental movement, but never did it until I moved here and in particular um physical education was like a huge like influence on that. I got to attend like two of their workshops, and that really cracked open the world of movement for me. Um, And then collaboration. I just, I feel like Portland, a lot of people work together. Like it's a very, it's very, um, it's encouraged. Collaboration is encouraged. And you see groups of people that are always pulling each other in for different things. And I think that's really awesome to have communities or a camaraderie like that. Um, So that, yeah, the movement, the collaboration. And then I feel like there was like one other thing that was like, oh yeah, if I, Oh yeah and i I honestly think that my sculpture current sculpture practice um like in all honesty, seeing the show the the show with you in Sidoni that that also like totally cracked open a whole world for me that I hadn't thought about before, so my practice has shifted some
4: in good ways since I've moved here
3: totally yeah i I as many issues as I have with this place, I'm always uh, letting people know or reminding them that. In the Pacific Northwest, there's just so much experimental stuff going on. It's the necessity of collaboration and project space or kind of vernacular approach comes out of a lack of funding, which sucks. But what we are able to do with what's available with each other is a really special thing. And everyone around the the nation watches our art scene. They look at what we're doing, Mm
4: -hmm. you know,
3: so it feels really special to have been here for this long. and to have seen so many different waves of brilliant people come in and out of the city, you know? And I, yeah, I never thought of it that way, but being here has absolutely radically changed my practice and my idea of the kind of practice that I could have. That's completely correct.
5: Yeah. I think before I just had this very like individualistic idea of what it means to be an artist.
4: Mm -hmm.
5: Um, And then all of the, Oh my God, all of the annoying, is this your work? Or is this a collaborative work? Mm-hmm. All my fucking work. I'm in it. Like we're, we're working together. It's our work. That, mm-hmm. I love that that isn't like nobody question When you're applying for grants and stuff, nobody, at least I haven't encountered it yet. So it might be a thing and let me know if it is. But I haven't encountered somebody asking me to differentiate my work from my collaborations.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: And that to me is awesome. I've had that experience applying for things. Um, when I was, uh, I went to school underground on the East Coast. I went to Vassar. Oh,
4: wow.
5: And applied for some stuff when I was in, and I didn't do collaborative work then, but I had applied for some stuff and the question was on there, like, or they would specify, please only show your work and not collaborative work. Um, and that's, and I've had the experience in San Francisco too. So I don't know. I haven't had that experience yet. Like nobody's asking me to to draw a line or anything in the same way. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it would, would not make much sense for the kind of work that you do in collaboration, which mm-hmm. bears your mark in a very, like, specific and indelible way, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I think of that piece by Nanda as a collaboration with you, even though you, you're not describing it that way. Like, I see it in that way. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well, so you went to Vasa, You went to Poughkeepsie.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Bananas. I'm from New York City.
5: Yeah, the Bronx.
3: In the Bronx, yeah.
5: I tried briefly to stay in New York when I graduated. Oh, uh-huh. man. <laughs> Not, you have to be in New York. Like, I had three months. I was staying with my friend's mom, and, yeah. you know, rightfully so. She's very kind to open her doors to me, but she was like, they lived in a uh, stuy Brooklyn. And she was like, yeah, you're welcome to stay here, but you're not going to stay here forever. You have three months to get your shit together. <laughs> Yep. And I was like, Oh God, I got three months. I got to find a job. I got to find an apartment and I found jobs, but finding a place that also fit the income that I was, I had just, I couldn't make it happen in three months. So I had to go back to California. Um, oh. So I only had three months experience in New York city. But it felt, I don't know if this is wrong too, or, but like, it also felt there like, Art, the art scene maybe there was a wall up like you just had to know people and because I was so new I didn't know anybody and it just it felt almost like impossible it wasn't it's not impossible I'm sure if I would have stayed I would have known people at some point but it just it felt like I can't make this all happen in three months
4: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah
3: yeah I think for that kind of context like someone moving in to the city from somewhere else it, it's generally going to be like a brown person that will have more success like that.
4: Mm-hmm. there's
3: a, a lot of black artists and i know that moved to new york that have difficulty in making it there and i mean i moved away because it's just i don't want to live with my family um and i can't afford to live there based on the kind of income that i make through my work so and I, I honestly have no regrets i mean i miss it but i also have to come to a realization that it was never really my city to begin with, and then part of the way that the city works is it churns people out, mm-hmm. you know, and just chews you up and spits you out, even if you're born and raised there, yeah. or in my case, raised there. Um, so yeah, it sucks, but also, you know, that's how it goes.
4: Yeah, a lot it's of my kinda, yeah. a lot of my
5: friends that uh, I went to bat with so that were from New York City. They don't live there anymore either. I don't know. Yeah, for different reasons, but I think it can be. It it can be. I don't know. It just seems like it's a really tough place to
4: make it work.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And the so, art scene is very like focused on money and stuff and I social networks that. and
4: you know. yeah. But um, I was gonna say it's really
5: nice to just sit and chat with you. Like I don't think I've actually ever have gotten to just like sit and talk with
4: you, which is really nice.
3: Yeah, it's always been. I mean, even this is kind of still formal because it's a uh, we're getting paid to do this. But isn't that amazing to be paid to just chat? It's yeah. amazing. I love it, and it's, <laughs> it's such a pleasure to talk to you.
4: Yes, it's been good talking with you too, Manuel. Right. Thank you.
3: Take care, and uh, say how to your partner for me? Congratulations, and uh, I wish you all the best in terms of this new housing situation.
4: Thank you so much. Wishing
5: you the best, and give your kitty little pets for me. I know they don't like hugs. Cats don't really
4: like hugs.
3: Yeah, so. she sure doesn't. I'll give her a belly rub for you Thank you Okay, have a great day
4: Have a good day, bye
3: Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast The creator and host of On Air is Michelle Hagwood Program Manager for Artist Residencies Our cover artwork is by Leon Finley and our music is by Tabor Dark Centrum's Executive Director is Robert Berman Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum Archives, interviews with teaching artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is Copyright 2020, Centrum Foundation.